clicker works. So you've probably seen a growing amount of headlines in the last uh, three years or so about what Norman Lamb, the MP, uh, described as a, a, a crisis on campus in student mental health. Uh, we can discuss whether there is a crisis, how do you measure that, but certainly there seem to be some red lights uh, that are flashing. Um, for example, uh, a lot of universities are reporting a much higher demand for uh, student counselling services. Um, dropouts uh, are rising, uh, as are student suicides. Um, the, an NUS survey found that um, four in five students experience mental health issues. Of course, it's not entirely clear what that covers in a mental health issue, but it's an alarming headline nonetheless. And there's also this feeling that there might be this hidden issue with mental illness across universities as well, not just students, but PhDs, staff, and so forth. So the question is, how do universities respond to that? And a lot of the discussion around how to deal with this crisis in mental health has focused around improving counselling services, improving mental health services. So um, the Higher, Institute, uh, Higher Education Policy Institute had a, uh, a famous report last year, and that was its main kind of recommendation, which is that universities should put more money into student counselling. But I wonder if, um, if that's... Uh, I think that's necessary, but I wonder if it's sufficient um, in the sense of, uh, if you're just focusing on this as a mental health issue and you've got to improve uh, counselling, it's kind of making the problem of, me of well-being a peripheral problem. So you have the main activity of the university, which is education and research, and then if you break down, you go to the counselling services at the periphery of the university and they fix you. So it loses this idea um, that actually well-being might be something that's part of the kind of main mission, something to, that it's intellectually interesting to research and to learn about, rather than just something you do when you break down. So some UK universities are trying to make more of a whole university approach to this issue. Uh, and two reports that came out this week recommended that. Uh, Universities UK published this report, which Rachel's going to talk about, I think, um, saying that uh, universities should make it a strategic imperative, mental health should be a strategic imperative. So also this week, the think tank IPPR said universities should adopt a whole university approach. So in fact, around uh, a third of universities have a well-being strategy here in the UK. Uh, Manchester, for example, has its mission statement, promoting enhanced well-being across the university. Cambridge has got a well-being strategy statement as well. Um, and around 40% offer content or courses on well-being. But I think most of them are probably just one-off classes and things like maybe mindfulness or resilience rather than proper you know, courses like American universities offer, which I'll talk about. Um, one very interesting, ambitious example is the University of Buckingham, where Anthony Selden recently became the Vice-Chancellor. He was the head of uh, Wellington School until recently, which was the first school to introduce happiness classes. So he's now gone to higher education, and he's announced that he wants to make Buckingham Europe's first positive university. What that means is that every student and every member of staff will take classes in positive psychology. Uh, and then also be more of a focus on healthy living in students, uh, mentoring, and, and so forth. So I went to Buckingham about a month ago, uh, and I met the head of psychology, who's been given this grand task of rolling out positive psychology classes for the whole university, and he's not even a positive psychologist. His expertise is in a completely different field. 
I mean, Buckingham is actually the smallest university in Britain. It's only got 3,000 students, but it's still quite an ambitious um, plan. Now, I went down there to Buckingham to talk about the fact that actually we might think that uh, universities making well-being part of their mission is something new, but it's not actually historically new. As the former president of Harvard, Derek Box, said, often we, we, we don't have a historical perspective on these issues. So we take... Um, new initiatives as something completely new in history, and we fail to learn from previous instances in history. So this is one of the ways that a multidisciplinary approach could help. So in fact, until quite recently, it was very accepted that well-being or flourishing or wisdom or virtue, these are different things but in a similar field, was one of the aims of higher education. So a very brief uh, tour, if you look back at the roots of academia, like Plato's Academy, or Aristotle's Lyceum in about 400 BC, there was an understanding that the aim of an education was not just knowledge or a career, but uh, wisdom or flourishing, eudaimonia. Aristotle said that philosophy couldn't just be theory, it had to be practice, what they called eschesis, which is where we get the word asceticism for, so that an education should be a kind of moral training. And that idea was obviously very influential on monasteries as well this idea of the ascesis or training. You go to a monastery not just to learn information, but to kind of train your mind and your emotions. Um, if you look uh, from the Middle Ages until around the mid-19th century, it was generally accepted that one of the aims of higher education was to develop a Christian uh, character. They had a kind of explicitly Christian mission. So Pope Gregory IX in, I think, the 13th century described universities as wisdom's workshops. How did they do that? Through things like compulsory chapel, Bible study, strict regulations of everything from when you came back to your dorm to whether you could have a beard or not. And this wasn't always necessarily the most inspiring, stimulating uh, education. It could be quite strict, quite boring, quite rote. You can see one poor person's already fallen asleep there. But it was the case that they had this mission to try and develop kind of wisdom and virtue and uh, you could say flourishing. Then in the mid-19th century, liberal Protestant universities followed the example of the German modern research institute and became less explicitly Christian, more secular, and more research-focused. So there was this idea that the main aim of the university was to develop free-thinking minds and research whatever they wanted. But still, you saw universities have this ideal, even if they weren't explicitly Christian, this ideal that university education could help people to be wise, could build character or virtue, or this word Bildung, which is still very influential in German higher education, which means kind of like self-cultivation or self-development. <coughs> so this is Charles Eliot, uh, who was the president of Harvard in, I think, the uh, 1920s. And he says, the moral purpose of a university should be to train young men. The whole work is uplifting, refining, and spiritualizing. And most American universities would have signed up to something similar like that around that uh, time. And some American universities still aspire to that mission. And Michael's going to talk to us about the liberal arts. But there's this idea that um, you know, liberal arts education should help people to flourish. So at Harvard, for example, in, in, in addition to your major, you have uh, general studies courses or honours courses in things like uh, justice, a famous course by a philosopher where you have a whole class doing kind of Socratic reasoning to try and de develop your skills of moral reasoning. And you also get a lot of courses like this in the States. Uh, its most popular course was a course in positive psychology. 
So there you have a kind of humanities approach to wisdom, and here you have a psychology approach to happiness or flourishing. And very rarely you get courses which try and combine the two, both the psychology and the humanities of flourishing. So there is still this kind of ideal in uh, American universities. But the liberal arts model is to some extent, um, some would say in decline in the US before we get jealous of American universities. And that's partly because of the rise of what's called the multiversity, which is, you know, in the 60s, just about 5% of people uh, of the population went to university. It's now about 30 or 40%. So universities have become much bigger, much more complicated institutions, and they don't necessarily have one mission. They'll have multiple different missions. And people will go to university for multiple different reasons as well. So as universities have expanded, the question is how are they funded? Who pays for them? You have in American universities people paying hundreds of thousands of pounds for their, uh, for their degree. Uh, here, of course, we have a very you know, fervent debate about how we pay for our education. As the government puts more and more money into higher education, they start asking, what are we getting for this money? What is university meant to do? How do we know if it's succeeding? How can we measure that? Um, and as the student body becomes much more diverse, in terms of gender and ethnicity, it becomes less obvious that there's one kind of collective wisdom to pass on, one canon of great books, for example. In the 1920s, when Woodrow Wilson was president of Princeton, it was very uncontroversial for him to say the business of university is to pass on the immemorial wisdom of the race. But 90 years later, that comment was extremely controversial at Princeton. There was big student protests over Woodrow Wilson being a racist. There are questions of whose wisdom is being imposed on us, you know, whose curriculum is being imposed on us. So there's this question of whether the liberal arts ideal, the university, the aim of university should be wisdom and flourishing, is actually outdated. Um, since the 1970s, the percentage of students who rate being very well off as very important has risen from 30% to 70%, while those who attach similar importance to inquiring a meaningful philosophy of life has fallen from about 80% to 40%. So people want to learn how to earn. That's particularly important, particularly if they're spending so much on their university degree. So how does this relate to here in the UK? And if we're like, if say we're working in the university, we're trying to develop a well-being strategy for our university, which is one of the things we're actually thinking about doing here at Queen Mary. What are some of the, the obstacles or challenges we might face? Um, one is that um, well-being strategies can be quite simplistic and instrumental and scientistic. They say, we, the scientists, know what well-being is, and now it's just a question of rolling it out to the rest of the university. And that can be things like, you know, new economics foundations, five paths to well-being, quite simple kind of things. There's no sense that actually there might be different ways to define well-being. Um, another issue is it can over-individualise well-being. This is why a lot of left-wing academics are very suspicious of, of well-being in higher education, because they feel it's basically the university administration saying, your well-being, if you're miserable, that's your responsibility. You just need to learn the mental coping skills to become more serene and detached and happy inside. And it's got nothing to do with your hours or your pay or your line management structure and so on. So that's why there's often a suspicion of kind of well-being policy as something um, neoliberal, you're smuggling in kind of attempts to cut back on, on things. Um, 
Also, well-being strategies can focus on the well-being of one group, but not others. So some academics think, oh, they always talk about the student experience or student well-being. It's just very stressful for the academics. You end up on kind of ratemyprofessor.com. Uh, and, you know, so it, it becomes, turns the university where all the staff and, and professors are like kind of, you know, nervous waitresses or waiters in a, in a cafe desperately trying to please the student as consumer. What about other well-being, like staff or faculty or society? Um, well-being missions can just be window dressing. You just put something on your website and it doesn't actually mean anything. And one of the big problems that um, uh, Daniel will be partly talking about is data. We don't know if there genuinely is a student mental health crisis. We know there's more demand for student counselling. We don't know why that is. We don't know yet entirely what works. We don't have the data about what universities should be doing. So that's a critical kind of issue. And building a whole university approach is, um, is hard. I'm not entirely comparing uh, academia, uh, politics and academia to Game of Thrones, but you know, it's very complicated. Like in Game of Thrones, there are many different departments, many different agendas, many different people. You have to get them all on board. So just for this kind of event, for example, I didn't bring anyone from student counselling or from other departments. So all those people you have to kind of get on board for a whole university strategy. And that's quite uh, difficult. So what might a good uh, well-being strategy look like? I think it would try to balance certain things. First of all, research and practice. So uh, rather than just saying, we have a strategy, let's roll it out, actually that this can be something that universities can research and explore and investigate. Don't assume we know what well-being is already, that there might be multiple different ways to explore it. Find it become kind of uh, an expert in this topic. I've been struck by, there are well-being centres in different universities in the UK, but they were always focused on beyond the university. They never did research on their own university, on their own institution, which always surprised me. Also balancing the sciences and the arts and humanities, understanding that the humanities have something to add to this as well, in terms of you know, different historical models of well-being, different cultural models of well-being, different philosophical and moral models of well-being, the role of the arts in improving well-being in terms of beauty, in terms of space, in terms of students engaging in the arts, um, balancing techniques and values. On the one hand, there are useful, empirically measurable <coughs> techniques which you can tell students about, things like mindfulness or CBT. But then it can be totally instrumental if you just focus on those techniques. So what about different values as well, different models of well-being? Happiness, justice, flourishing, and so on. Um, quantitative and qualitative evidence, like not just looking at what can be measured, but also asking what can't be measured numerically. Online and offline approaches. Looking at well-being for different groups, staff, students, and wider society. And then also, um, I think high-level support is critical, getting your vice-chancellor or principal on board, but also going around to each department and trying to get them on board as well, which is kind of uh, slow work but essential. Um, so those are my thoughts. Uh, I've, I've ended a little early. Any questions now or, we, um, or thoughts? We have some time at the end of this session. No? Okay. Yes. Yeah. So I just came across recently a Stanford course called "Designing Your Life," or you know, it's applying design principles like from engineering. Right. To it, it, I just it just came to mind because you mentioned Harvard and some of the American courses, and I wanted to come across it, or um, anyone else that it had. 
It's about they say it's our most popular course ever. Yeah. No, I, I come across why. It also gets into disciplinary because they're trying to take engineering principles. Yeah. And yeah, I mean these kinds of courses are very high status in American universities because they have these kind of elective courses which students right across the board can choose. Usually, about thirty percent of their course will be these elective courses, <laughs> and ones around how can I be happier uh, are very popular with undergraduates. So I interviewed someone at NYU called Daniel Lerner, um, who's launched this course. They get 500 students coming to their course. They have 10 teaching assistants to help in kind of small groups. So it's the same at places like uh, Rutgers as well. Often these are big, they're called signature courses or capstone courses. And universities put a lot of um, you know, uh, money into them. The issue with that, though, is how much can you affect an audience when it's 500 people in a, in a kind of lecture room? Um, you know, can you make a difference to them? Um, yeah, but in general, the American universities uh, you know, do those courses much better. There are very few of those kind of multidisciplinary courses uh, in British universities. So I think Queen Mary is now trying to, to develop more of those kind of courses. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking about that because I, I, when I was at the University of Texas in 2010, uh, I was uh, with uh, James Pennybaker, who's there, has a, has a course which uh, has a thousand people on it. Mm. And he, he runs it in two, with Sam Gosling, he, he, he runs it in two groups of 500 back to back. Yeah. Needless to say, the assessment just multi choice because you can't do anything else with a thousand people. Yeah. But um, I was thinking that, that so, so, yeah, so there it's set up. They have the facilities to do these, these massive, almost kind of in house MOOC courses. Yeah. Whereas, you know, I was thinking if, if we wanted to roll something out at Greenwich like that, we just simply don't have the, the facilities. Room, yeah. Or indeed, probably the infrastructure to share across departments, because I don't know what it's like here, but at Greenwich, money and things are all just very siloed into departments, and you have yeah. to kind of you don't want to spread the resources of your department in ways which don't get credited back to you. Yeah. But interesting challenges to try and do something because I think there is a demand out there. Yeah. I could just mention in response to that. I mean, I, we've, we've been running this uh, the Centre of History of Emotions as an interdisciplinary centre for about 10 years now. And we've tried various research and teaching things and have constantly come up against this exact problem that you say that every bit of money has to belong to a department. Um, and so. I, this is probably shared across a lot of universities, but there's this been this drive for a long time for us to do research and teaching across, across disciplines. Um, but the, the financial structures and the kind of politics of that haven't changed. And so you have to be prepared to let some of your money go, you know, if you're going to um, do mm -hmm. this. Uh, but the other thing to mention is something Jules just slightly alluded to. is We have this thing now called the Queen Mary model, um, which is encouraging departments and indeed making the resources available and trying to break down those barriers so that students will indeed have to take a certain number of modules which are designated as QM model modules. And that means two things really. Firstly, they cut across disciplines. And secondly, that they're focused on employability in some way or other. And I think that's what Jules was alluding to when he was talking about QM moving partly in that direction. Yeah. And I just but say that just for other people at other institutions in case they're interested. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it probably, these three kind of initiatives have to be driven centrally which is and so it would help. <laughs> yeah, and it would help if there's money from the university as well for it. Yeah. Maybe there's an interesting uh, consideration for today in terms of whether we ought to look at the US as role models in terms of where to go. You know, maybe they get a lot of people attending these courses, but if we look at some of the problems in the US institutions, um, I think it was a blog of yours, Jules, you mentioned mm. about sort of the, the therapy culture in, in the US and in the States and how 
you know, self-esteem and concepts that are very individualistic are so central to US culture. And that isn't the way we in the UK or Europe would generally approach these things, perhaps, perhaps the liberal arts way of approaching it is at odds with the um, positive psychology-based approach. And I'm, I'm saying that not as a critic of positive psychology, I did a master's in positive psychology, and I see the merits. But if we were to look at, say, the, the godfather of positive psychology, Seligman's, um, is it yourself that's the positive psychology? No, some of you used to talk positive psychology. So maybe there's going to be an interesting thing today about whether um, you know, the sort of pros and cons about the way the US approaches well-being, mm. and whether there are some things that we, as British people, most of us, I think, um, and as Europeans, so to some degree these days, mm. uh, maybe there's, you know, there's a slightly different way of approaching mm. these, these topics. Mm. Uh, because one only needs to turn on the social media and Twitter to see all the debates and things going on in the US at the moment, <coughs> a lot of which are being attributed to a kind of me, me, me culture that often comes along with a very individualistic way of viewing well-being in contrast mm. to, say, a collectivist approach or one that mm. looks at um, liberal arts or that looks at community, society and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Rachel. Yeah. I just am so excited about being ahead of schedule. <laughs> so. I'll go really slowly. <laughs> um, this. I'm there we go. Can I need that? Yeah. How's so it just, work? If the top one, we'll move it along. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm being slightly blinded. No, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so hi, um, I... Can you, can you, yeah. Can you see all right? Yeah. yeah. Um, my name's Rachel, I, like I said before, I'm the policy manager at Shooting Minds. Um, I just had a couple of thoughts on Jules' presentation before I go on to mine. Um, so one is, um, when I was at university I did a combined honours degree, so sort of like a liberal arts degree, and I had a central module um, which explored different theories of, um, of humanity, essentially. Um, and everyone who was on the combined course had to do that, and a lecture is provided from the course disciplines. So we know that, that that kind of can be possible within structures that support that, so would really support that model. Mm. Um, but that just leads me on to introduce myself a bit more. Um, so I've been working at Student Minds for two years now. Um, in my first year at Student Minds, I also worked at the University Mental Health Advisors Network. Um, and that's a representative body for mental health advisors and similar roles um, in institutions across the UK. So I have a bit of insight about the kind of staff experience there, the only slide, um, but I'm mostly going to be focusing on the student experience in my presentation. Um, uh, which one? Sorry. That's cool. It's uh, this one here. Is it just <laughs> I'm pointing it in the wrong direction. Okay, it's that one here. Okay. <laughs> this one here. Brilliant. Um, so, yeah, I'll go through a little bit about Student Minds, um, and then I will go through a bit about the University's UK Mental Health and Wellbeing Programme, and the two things that have come off the back of that. So one is the IPPR report, which is um, an independent report, and one is um, the University's UK Set Change Framework. So I'll go into a little bit about what it defines a whole university approach as and show some of our students' perspectives on that idea. Um, I generally talk to you as well about our work around the student voice and student engagement and how that can be used to kind of co-create co a mental health and wellbeing service in the university, but not just a service, actually, just like the entire culture of the university as well. So firstly, um, if I can, yeah. So um, Student Minds, we work at universities across the UK, so we work with about 100 universities and we run a range of different 
different things at those universities. So um, our kind of our base has always been peer support. So we run peer support programs at universities across the UK, um, and these are on mental health, um, specifically um, eating disorders and also low mood and depression. So we what we do there is we train students who go through quite a, a vigorous recruitment process to make sure that it's safe for them. We train them to co-facilitate with another another student um, sessions that are for, come off a, um, a workbook, so a very clear session plan. Um, and the students follow those, and that's usually quite embedded within the referral systems that exist in the university already. So, for example, somebody could take our low medium depression course before taking counselling or after as a continuation of their care if the CAP six sessions or whatever it is that that university provides isn't sufficient for that student. Students can attend again our sessions as well if they need them further on. And what we find quite useful about these sessions is they're tailored to the student experience. So they talk about stress, they talk about social networks at university, they talk about moving away from home and all the issues that kind of might affect a student more specifically than a generic CBT course may do if they were to go to that on the NHS. Um, we also run campaign groups, so these are to help students um, who uh, perhaps just want to kind of take more action in their university. So um, most of these are about raising awareness and we're moving more into kind of the mental health literacy um, end of things. So awareness being, okay, mental health exists and literacy being what exact symptoms kind of correlate to particular things, when would you seek support, what's normal um, and kind of equipping students to be a bit more aware of that. Um, and then we run workshops with staff across the UK, so these are um, look after your mate workshops, so the staff will run these on campus um, and those will equip students to look after their friends. We often find that students come to these actually wanting support for themselves, but if the stigma is too large that is one way in for them. And it also means that um, the social network that students rely on, much more than the professional support, is backed up by, by kind of extra support and training. Oh. I've, uh, do you know what? I might just nod at you okay. <laughs> to change slides. No, um, let me see if I can get this to work. Don't worry, I, I can do that. Too. Okay. <laughs> I'll just keep talking. So, um, on yeah. the. I think it's the. This one? Okay, yeah, perfect. Um, so, when we run training with staff and students, we try to um, bring them into this model of mental health. So the, who's, who's heard of the mental health continuum before it all that one? Okay. Um, so essentially um, what it shows is that you have a mental health difficulty or condition that will go along the x-axis here. Um, and what that could mean is that you may or may not have a clinical diagnosis. So um, those with a diagnosis might sit at this end and those without might sit over here. And then well-being is kind of how you're coping on a day-to-day -day basis, so that can be optimal or minimal. <coughs> um, so what this shows is that if you, say, have an example, uh, have a diagnosis of clinical depression, you could actually be flourishing at university because you could have all the right things in place. Equally, you could have no diagnosis whatsoever and no necessarily explicit symptoms of a mental health difficulty. And because you are lonely, because you're isolated, because your course is stressful, because you have financial difficulties, all the social aspects of your university, your wellbeing could be really low. And hopefully what this shows is that it's important that the university environment itself um, supports students' wellbeing. It's not just about the individual and kind of their innate position. 
Next slide, please. Okay, so um, who's heard of the Universities UK Mental Health and Wellbeing Programme? Okay, so a few people. Um, so it has it, it started in 2016. They decided that it would be one of their priorities for the year to take on mental health and wellbeing. In the previous year, they took on um, violence against women and sexual assault as a key policy area and managed to get quite a lot of universities to bring that into essentially into their policy, to have central policies around that issue. Um, and what it's done this year is, um, so you'll see the IPPR report, there's also the framework, and they're looking to establish a better database um, for this. And um, finally, thinking about the systems approach, you're thinking about the NHS, they want to establish co-commissioning guidelines um, so that GPs and um, commissioners are able to provide the right support for the students in that in the area. Mm -hmm. Next slide, please. So I'm not going to go through each of these, but because um, I think Jules touched on quite a few of them. Um, but what we know broadly is that um, young adults are experiencing worse mental health than they have in the past, according to um, morbidity surveys. Um, but this is largely because of young women's um, position getting worse. Um, and then, in addition to that, um, we know that there have been increases in, in service uptake in universities. But universities themselves don't capture the data of the well, data around well-being of their students, apart from those seeking support or those in crisis. Um, so it's very hard for us to tell whether students have a different experience from others. But there have been a few bits of work on this. So um, HEPI did a survey recently, and comparing um, young adults to the student equivalent, um, they, students have worse well-being than young adults. So there's something about the university experience that is perhaps making their well-being worse because it's not about their age, it's not necessarily about their hormones <laughs> or being a teenager, there's something about that university experience. Mm -hmm. um, we can get to the next slide. So the recommendations sort of split into two, so two um, of the recommendations from IPPR report are about higher education institutes. Um, so one is to just make it a priority issue across the sector and the second is to increase funding in that area. And then the rest of the recommendations here about the government and the NHS, so they want place-based coalitions for mental health um, and a student premium to top up funding because student GPs who, who deal with students get paid a lot less per student than they do for a normal patient. Um, so looking to fund that. And then having a student health passport so students don't feel like they have to retell their story over and over again, which is something that we hear a lot from students. Mm. So, um, I, because of we're, we're talking about an interdisciplinary approach here, I wanted to show something from my PPR support about um, learning and teaching models. Jules actually touched upon this, but as you can see, um, the learning and teaching models, so the course content and delivery, less than half have that present at the university. Um, and then a, a significant proportion don't know, and that's the bit that I find interesting. Because this means that whoever is filling these reports isn't thinking about um, whether the intellectual and academic experience of university is taking into account mental health and wellbeing. So what we found from students as well is that it's not just about necessarily taking a module on happiness. It's about your course, your actual course that you're studying, not any electives to that, being good for your wellbeing. So um, a HEPI study showed that students who think that they're learning more and feel as if they're learning more have better well-being than students who don't. So if you're engaged in your course, you're more likely to feel, to feel better about your life, basically. Um, 
In addition to that, um, students who are learning at a deep level rather than a surface level have lower levels of anxiety as well. So there's something about how the course is designed that can contribute to well-being without explicitly being about this is how you become happy, this is how you look after your well-being, if that makes sense. Next slide. Um, so I wanted to frame this a bit in the Universities UK Step Change Framework. So um, they've, pushed, they've put it in between individual institution and system. Um, so I think what people in this room are touching on is kind of how the institution um, can make those priorities as well as um, giving access to the individual. Mm. Next slide, mm -hmm. please. <laughs> um, so they set out a whole university <coughs> approach. So this is split between support, community, living and learning. Um, so I think support is, is kind of a given. We know that we need more funding in um, a wide range of interventions in universities. We need to trial new interventions. Um, but what's talked about less is learning, living and community. So one area that I can kind of add some light onto is um, the living area. So at Student Minds, we um, have been working with an accommodation provider to trial training with accommodation staff. So what this looked like for us is we went to Nottingham Trent University and in partnership with the accommodation provider, UPP, um, we designed some training for accommodation staff. And this was tailored to their specific needs, so what kind of problems would come up for them, and what level is appropriate for them to provide support, <coughs> and how is that contextualised within the broader support. Um, off the back of this, we wrote a report that gives recommendations about how the general living space can be good for wellbeing, as well as the staffing structures in that space. Um, the next slide, please. So just to finish off, um, I realise I'm sort of scatting around quite a bit, but this is a very broad topic. Um, but um, what we sort of care about with Student Minds is empowering students with knowledge, confidence and skills to be able to support their own mental health and that of others. And part of that is we believe that students are experts by experience. So those who are experiencing a mental health difficulty, using services or considering using services, but also those who are supporting others with their mental health. So basically anyone could be affected by this. So off the back of this, um, we've done some recent student engagement work. So one is the Student Voice Forum. So this was a, a small focus group of students um, who we kind of we had a very in-depth conversation about some of the barriers to seeking support, but also um, what aspects of their university experience help them to feel like they're flourishing. There's a full report of this on our website. Um, student Voice Questionnaire, which asks a broader group of about 130 students on our network about these questions, what do they think a whole university approach was, and how do they think mental health difficulties could be prevented at their university, and again, that's in the report. Mm -hmm. um, and so that stuff's just kind of happened in line with Universities UK. And upcoming, um, so off the back of a pilot that we've done at Birmingham University, where we've taken this model of a student voice forum, a focus group, taken it to students so they can run it themselves on campus. So we've done that at Birmingham. They found some results that have fed into the student support service, but also hopefully the university at large and student unions activities. Um, so off the back of that, we are running the same project at York, UE and Cardiff. Um, to empower students to do that work at the universities to hopefully co-create the strategic plans that they're doing there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and just to finish off, final slide, um, I think this, this might be just helpful to refer back to as we speak today about whole university approach. Um, so we ask students what they think an ideal, their ideal vision of a university who cares about mental health is. Um, and the themes can broadly be put into more accessible support and more focus on well-being and an open and inclusive university culture. 
So just kind of reflecting on those could be quite useful. Mm -hmm. I hope that gives a bit of a very quick like start, but there you go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you. I like applauding speakers. While I'm turning slide, any questions for Rachel? There'll be a bit of time for discussion at the end of this session as well. I, I have one. Um, mm. Do you think, uh, do you look at students' expectations when they come to university? And I'm wondering, yeah. do you think that students expect university to be hard? I mean, I think back to when I was an undergraduate. Yeah. I felt shame not finding it like the best days of my life. Yeah. And so I had an expectation that it was just going to be like Animal House. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, it was quite stressful. Is that? <laughs> yeah, that definitely comes up. So um, we did a study in 2014 called Grand Challenges, which looked at the main issues for students, and one of them was that feeling that it's supposed to be the best time of your life. So if it's not your failure and things are going horribly wrong, um, and that, yeah, so there's definitely that. Um, also recently. Youth site and Happy and Unite did a joint survey which showed applicants' mm. experiences um, and expectations, and then they also have an equivalent student survey, so you can compare the data there and see that students' expectations aren't necessarily meeting up to mm. what they're receiving. And for us, that's largely about expectation management, communicating to students what to expect mm. when they come to university, um, and also normalising. So, for example, at King's College. Um, they, uh, with their widening participation office, they put out messages on social media and so on in Freshers' Week to just say, you might be feeling a bit homesick, that's okay. Like, they mm. sort of normalise a lot. Yeah. Um, and that's really important work as mm. well. Yeah. Thanks. Any others? Yeah. Um, yeah you mentioned that uh, student mental health is deteriorating and that um, the cause of that seems to be that young women aren't doing as well. Do you know, are there any structural reasons for that or any sort of explanation for that? I, I'd imagine the patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying to break it, I, I can't really break it down necessarily, but I think that there, are, there isn't enough evidence on that at the moment. I know that charities like MQ are doing research um, around why young women are experiencing worse, but um, I, I think. It, all I can say is speculation, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I can't give you any specific evidence. One hypothesis on that is that it's simply that women are more likely to report. But this is actually so. This particular study, so yes, young women are more likely to report. But this study is um, like a clinical measurement when someone. So it's not. It's not about reporting necessarily. It's taken from kind of lots of different measures. So. Still have to report. Yeah, they, of course, but this is this is not a self-selecting sample. Wouldn't have to be, no. Okay. But I mean, you know, still, so. still, uh, still, just one potential hypothesis, and, and even if it was valid, it could just be a small part of the explanation. Yeah. I think definitely men need to be supported more to um, to be able to open up and talk about their mental health. So one of the one of the other reasons might be. Um, I, and I haven't seen recent statistics on this, but certainly maybe two or three years ago, women were performing a higher level at degree level than men. And that mm. was sort of balancing out at postgraduate level, but, but at degree levels there was a higher mm. um, standard of grades, so yeah. it could be you know, yeah. pressure people put on themselves. I, that's mm. true. I think also from a student mind's perspective, um, the number of women in supporting roles and caregiving roles mm. is quite quite mm. high. Um, so when we 
and it might just again be a disclosure issue but when we survey students who are supporting the women tend to be taking on much more support for those experiencing mental health difficulties than men which can contribute to their own mental health. Just to tell you a bit more on the gender thing, <clears throat> in every age group through adulthood, uh, women report more mental health problems than men. In every age group, men have worse problems with drug abuse and alcoholism, which mm. may just be the same thing, but expressed in a different way. And in every age group, men commit suicide more than women. A lot, more, mm. about 400%. Yeah. Mm. And that peaks in midlife with a big male spike. So. Mm. <laughs> Got that to report Yeah. <laughs> 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 Thanks. I'm interested. I have the data on student suicides, which shows, um, uh, and I'll mention that in my talk, but yeah, male students take their own life by suicide um, based on the, the correlation to go back for the past 10 years, uh, averages out at least twice as, as commonly as, as female students. Mm -hmm. um, if anybody wants that data, there's an analysis mm -hmm. that we did at Hong Kong University. Um, but as, 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 as you'll know, I mean, it's it's the case that, that women um, perhaps report it more, but more, more attempts, or you know, less, uh, less completion of, of suicide attempts mm -hmm. than male, and that's why the male, male rate is often, is often higher for suicide. More self-harm, isn't it, rather than suicide? Yeah, yeah, and the methods that are used by men are often more violent, so they're, mm -hmm. they're completed more commonly. Mm -hmm. I think... Yeah, it's It's also, I, worth mentioning the kind of queer and LGBT groups yeah. and how like those might not necessarily be captured in mm. that experience. Um, but just as a quick promotion, we, we have like an LGBT page now um, mm. for students with that experience. So if you feel like you'd like to circulate that to any students who might need it, then that, that is there. Yeah, which takes us on to our next talk. And, and uh, Daniel's, uh, your organisation, looking at wellbeing data in American universities, something that struck me was um, trans students have by far the worst mental health of any group. Um, just in a, in a report that you guys produced in the last night, they were a real outlier for higher kind of depression and anxiety. Um, segue there, but thank you very much, no, uh, you. Rachel, for your um, Next we have uh, Daniel uh, from Healthy Minds Network, um, which I thought would be really, it just happened to be in Europe, which is great that he came over um, to, to here to the UK. And it's very useful to help him think about um, this issue of universities gathering data so we can start to see what's the issue, what works, what kind of interventions work. By the way, do, we, do, do you uh, need any water while you're up there? Or no? Okay. Okay, thanks. So it is, it's, it's this one here. So if you, it's that, that arrow here goes forward Great. and the one below goes Great. backwards. Thanks. Okay, well, yeah, thank you so much, Jules, for yep. having me here. It's a pleasure. My second time in London, first time was only a couple of hours on my way to Edinburgh, and um, now I'm here for a whole day and a half, so <laughs> I'll work my way up, probably be back at some point in the year with my family as well. They're, my, my two young daughters were disappointed I didn't bring them along because they heard about a big Ferris wheel in, in London. Um, so yeah, as, as Jules mentioned, I'll talk about measuring mental health and share experience collecting data Mainly in the United States, we have, we've had a couple, a handful of universities outside the US, not, none in the UK so far. Um, I'll give you a little overview about our organization, our organization, Healthy Minds Network, tell you a bit about our survey data that we've collected through our main study, the Healthy Minds Study, um, and then a piece of our research on the economic case for student mental health services that seems to get the most attention among our audience in the United States at least. 
and then a couple of related projects I just wanted to mention. Um, so so my, my background is actually in economics, and um, so the way that I think of this, and I think it's probably similar to how many of you think about this, even though you're not necessarily trained in economics, is that, is, is that we can make good investments in young people through colleges and universities. Um, and, and so that, that's what struck me as an economist. I'm always interested in, kind of, as a policymaker, how can we make the best investments on behalf of society? And student mental health struck me immediately when I started thinking about it as an area where we could make great investments. And then I, then I discovered, as I think you all know, that, and as Jules alluded to, we don't know enough about what those best investments are and we're not necessarily making the best investments that we do know about. Um, so that, that's, that's roughly the research agenda that we have. And especially when I started in this work in 2005, um, there wasn't a lot of, there was far from all the data that we'd want to, to start approaching this question or even trying to know where to begin. And so we started with collecting a lot of descriptive data through surveys and then kind of worked our way up to developing or evaluating interventions or programs with the data. Um, so our network, we think, of, we, we think of anybody, any researcher or practitioner who's, who's kind of interested in student mental health and data as part of the, our network. We want to we think of ourselves as connecting people, research and practice, and, and research and data to practice. Um, but we, these dots show the higher institutes higher education institutions of higher education who have been in our Healthy Minds survey study. And so we've had about 150 schools in the United States, a few in Canada, and we did kind of a, a, a we, also, we also did a study in the Middle East where we had a couple of schools in Qatar and one in the American University of Beirut in Lebanon as well. So we have a little bit of international data. Um, And a lot of what we do is, we're sort of, we're, this originated as a really academic project. As a researcher, as, a, as, as an assistant professor, a new, a new faculty member in Michigan, I needed to collect data, publish articles, try to, you know, that was what I needed to do. And, and so we started publishing articles early on, but we've evolved into really more of a, a research practice organization where we're very focused on not just publishing academic articles, but sharing the data with practitioners, higher education, decision makers, clinicians, support staff, giving them useful data to inform their priorities, um, to evaluate their progress. And so we share our data back to lots of different audiences through different ways, through a webinar series, through research briefs, through data reports. Um, we have an annual research symposium that brings together a lot of, not just researchers, but um, uh, practitioners, much like I think this group, and it's, it's, it's paired with our annual Depression on College Campuses conference in Ann Arbor, Michigan in March. So just if anyone's interested, happens to be in Michigan <laughs> or wants to make the trip, I, I, think, I think for many people who comment, they say it's the highlight of their, their year, whether they're a researcher or a practitioner, because we get a great group of people, mostly from the U.S., but a handful from outside. Um, but from leading organizations like um, in the United States, for example, it would be like the Jed Foundation, some of you might have heard of them, uh, Active Minds, uh, Student Advocacy Organization, other kind of student health professional organizations as well as researchers and so on. 
Okay, so this is just kind of some graphics to give you a sense that we try to share our data in visually appealing ways to practitioners. Um, the details are not, not the point here. Uh, so let me, let me show a few data points, and there's plenty more that I'm happy to talk about um, or pass along articles, whatever, whatever you might want to see. Um, so, so our Healthy Mind studies, our survey study, as I mentioned, about 150 campuses so far. We've had over 200,000 survey respondents. So it's about, it's a, typically about 1,000 respondents for any given campus. That varies a lot by the size of the campus. Um, where we have a, the topic, the idea is to assess symptoms of mental health conditions. So we have basic screens for depression, like the PHQ-9 for anxiety, the G87. We also measure positive mental health. We have a brief flourishing scale. And we also have a lot of questions about the use of service, mental health services. But as, as I think Jules is talking about, we're not just interested in um, kind of the medical approach, the, the, the treatment approach, but also more of the resilience and prevention and promotion approaches. So we look at a lot of other factors, like the academic and social environment, um, substance use, health behaviors, attitudes, and awareness. Here, so a couple of data points. This is just compiled over um, some of our recent years of data, 2007 to 2014, for our screens for mental health problems, I'll just use that term broadly, for example, major depression on the, based on the PHQ-9 score, uh, scale, we have 10% of students with a positive screen for major depression. And you can see and so on for different anxiety, similar kind of level 7, 12%, eating disorder based on the SCOF screen, which I think was developed in the UK originally, uh, 16%. And so collectively, it's about one in three, 35% of students who have at least one of these apparent mental health problems based on our brief screens. Um, again, Jules alluded to the idea that maybe these problems are increasing over time, and so we have now about 10 years of data that we can look at, and it looks like may maybe that's the case in our data. It's not a dramatic trend, at least for suicidal ideation. This is asking students about whether they've had serious thoughts of attempting suicide in the past year. It's gone up from around 6% to now around 10% over the years. Uh, so maybe may more than a modest increase in relative terms. Uh, the important caveat there is that it is a changing set of schools each year in our study, and we've grown over time. So we're, we, it's not designed to measure perfectly changes over time. Um, but I think, I think there's, still, there's still, I think, some indication of a trend. This, this chart for each bar here is another, was one of our 100 plus campuses that have been in the study. And so this is for um, percent with a positive screen for major depression. So you can see there's a handful of campuses with very low prevalence, around 5%. I know it's hard to see these numbers. And then you've got a lot of bars, a lot of campuses in the kind of 10 to 15% range, that's where most of the schools are in terms of major depression prevalence based on the screen. But then we have a handful of schools that are outliers on the other end, up as high as almost 25%. So the, I guess kind of the main takeaway is that most of the schools are pretty similar to each other, but there are schools on either end of this, the extremes as well in terms of prevalence. Not every school is the same. And that's why they participate in our study. They, can't, they, they don't want to just assume that our national numbers apply to them. Um, we also, and giving the data back to institutions, we give them the, the capability to log into a website that we developed and then look at 
produce charts where they can look at their own school compared to other schools. So when I log in as Univ University of Michigan, um, you can see in, that's the red bar. It's kind of in the middle, a little bit on the higher end. This is, again, major depression. Um, and then we also define for Michigan 10 peer institutions based on kind of a formula that gives weight to a few different characteristics like public versus private, enrollment size, geographic region, academic competitiveness, and so on. Um, and so, again, probably hard to see, but these gray bars represent peer institutions. And again, you can see Michigan is kind of in the middle of the distribution for peer institutions. Um, I think a lot of schools are very interested in, well, of the students who have an apparent mental health problem, how many are receiving mental health services? And the number, at least during this time period, the number has increased over time, certainly. There's a steady uptick in mental health service use, but for this time period, it was about 40% of students with one of those mental health conditions that I showed you before who have received any mental health services in the previous year. Um, so the majority are not receiving mental health services. And it's not to say they all necessarily should be, um, but, but there are a lot of students out there with untreated mental health problems, as we all know. Okay, and, and also for even those who do receive services, we look at a kind of the standard definition of minimally adequate care. Um, it's only about half the students who are, who are receiving depression care who are receiving a minimally adequate level in terms of the number of therapy visits or the duration of medication that they're on. Now, in the last couple of years, we've expanded the scope of our study quite a bit by, by adopting a, a more modular approach. So what that means is that when a school joins our survey study, they, they are always going to be doing the three core sections, which is kind of demographic and background characteristics. That's what the, student, the survey taker starts off with. And then the screens for mental health conditions and then questions about service use. But after that, it's up to the institution to select from this a large, now a pretty large menu of topics what they want to explore in more depth in terms of understanding their students. And so all of these topics are the different elective modules that they can select from. And maybe hard to read for those in the back, but just to give a couple examples, sleep, sexual assault, um, knowledge about and attitudes about services, competition, campus climate and culture, resilience and coping. Okay, so the economic case for mental health services. Uh, let, let me just, uh, just to, I want to make sure I have a list, a little bit of time for discussion. Uh, let me just kind of skip to the bottom line here from this one. This, we did a study where we looked at how mental health related to student retention. We followed the academic records for students who took the survey. This is our original Health and Mind study at University of Michigan. And as you might expect, students with significant mental health problems in the survey were more likely to depart the institution, to drop out, uh, without graduating, and we then translated that to a rough economic case um, where, whereby if, if we could reduce depression, we could, in theory, increase retention, re, you know, increase persistence of students, and that could lead to increased tuition revenue for institutions, um, and then probably more importantly, increased lifetime productivity for the, the students themselves because they have more years of college education. There's lots of research showing how that translates to um, lifetime earnings or productivity. And so just taking some hypothetical numbers, we demonstrated that if you follow this logic, and of course there are a variety of assumptions, then the economic case for supporting student mental health is fairly strong. Um, now just a couple of other projects I want to mention because some of you have, I think, maybe more specific interests where we might want to talk. Um, we have a project on student-athlete mental health called Athletes Connected. 
Um, and there's a website called Athletes Connected where you can check it out. Uh, we've done a large randomized trial in gatekeeper training programs, mental health first aid in particular, one of the more popular programs which originated in Australia has been um, spreading uh, rapidly in the United States. With the, re the results actually were somewhat disappointing in, ter in terms of the outcomes, and I can talk more about that if you want. Um, but, but these kinds of programs are very popular in the United States higher education. I, I imagine probably as well here, I think I saw one of Rachel's slides showed that the vast majority of schools are doing some kind of essentially gatekeeper training for their, their staff or their faculty. Um, I want to mention also my, so my sabbatical here project is kind of broader than student mental health. It's about youth, youth, child and youth mental health more generally. And I want to kind of go back to my economics roots. And, and the, I'm, so I'm writing a book with a co-author, starting it anyway, haven't really started writing it, but researching it now, uh, where the, the basic theme is what are the best investments in children's and youth mental health? And our, we're planning to select a, a handful of case studies, kind of examples of, say, programs that appear, maybe, appear to be very good investments but have failed to be disseminated as widely as they should be. Or maybe even we might find an example that, that, that did disseminate widely but doesn't have great evidence. But to kind of handful of case studies to understand um, to what extent are we making the best investments in children's and youth mental health, and what are some of the reasons that explain why we might not be? So I, I'd love to talk with any of you who have an interest in that topic, which I think probably all of you do in some different way. Happy to, to also correspond after this event is over, but let me see if there's any questions or discussion for a couple of minutes, if you'd like. Thank you. Any questions? Um, they're, they're random samples, so, so we, we get a cross-section of the entire institution. Um, on a small number of cases, uh, institutions have a, want us to oversample certain years. They have some specific interest, but we're almost always getting a random sample of the full institution, including graduate students. Um, of course, they don't all complete the survey, and we do, do adjustments. You know, we make some adjustments for kind of differential participation rates for different types of students as best we can. Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering about the kind of local variation um, yeah. across the United States. Um, and one of the themes we've thought about here over the years is not trying to find a one-size-fits-all kind of, you know, formula or course or something to roll out sort of nationally, globally. Um, and I wondered, well, you know, you know for, for your own studies, whether you found that or whether you indeed would even advocate you know, that a different approach might be appropriate in a different school? Mm -hmm. um, well, I think, uh, I mean, first of all, I guess I would just say that um, I think we're sorely lacking. We have lots of data, especially, I mean, at least in the US, we have lots of data, kind of the epidemiology, at least in terms of the basic prevalence and, and correlates of mental health, um, the extent to which students are receiving services, but the actual effectiveness of programs especially kind of the larger, more kind of public health programs, which are hard to evaluate. You can't necessarily do a randomized trial. We're really lacking, I think, rigor and or even just any evidence on what, what's working. And then that's sort of compounding that is that there's so many homegrown programs. So it, it's, I think it's both a strength, but also a weakness. It's sort of a two-edged uh, sword in, in the US where, where there's so much talent and I think energy 
and interest and at so many different places to actually develop, like, you know, we can develop this for our students. We know that kind of our students best, we can do something. And, and in fact, lots of great programs emerge, but because they only exist in a single institution, um, there just isn't good evidence on how effective they are. You can't, with one institution, you can't necessarily even do, do a, a, a very convincing study. You might be able to do a pre-post study that if the, outcome, if the changes are very dramatic, maybe, maybe you're convinced by that. But, um, so I actually, I don't know, I, I, I kind of tend to think that there's, ideally there would be more sharing of knowledge and maybe more standardization with, with appropriate kind of flexibility for adaptation, you know, when it is, when programs are exported, because I'm coming from the perspective of, you know, I really would love to have strong evidence behind what we're doing, um, which is just not possible if each institution is developing their own program because they don't have the capacity or even necessarily, it might even be theoretically impossible to have a convincing, um, you know, trial with just one site. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, sure. um,